This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is Good Morning Liberty. Well, what is up, all of our Liberty-loving friends? This is another fantastic episode of Good Morning Liberty. My name is Nate Thurston. Our co-host Charlie is not here today, but I am joined by James Chernowski, who's been on the show several times now. He's the Senior Tech and Innovation Policy Analyst at Americans for Prosperity. James, nice to have you back. Well, we've got a we've got a couple things to to talk about today as we were just discussing. The first thing I wanted to ask about was the 702 reauthorization. And I know I know we've mentioned 702 a few times in the past, but for people who don't immediately recognize the the number that we're mentioning, if you could let them know what that is. Yeah, absolutely. So Section 702 is a portion of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, known as FISA, more broadly speaking. And what that does is it actually provides surveillance authorities to our intelligence community to go and collect the communications of non-U.S. persons. Now, the problem that's been documented with this particular program is that more often than not, when they are doing this, they are actually collecting the information of Americans, too. And that's really problematic. You know, we have a constitution with the Fourth Amendment, uh, and that doesn't go away just because your data was overseas and got collected incidentally here. <laughs> so this program has been repeatedly misused and abused in the 15 years since it was uh, signed into law by then uh, the Bush administration. Um, you know, it's been used to go and spy on January 6th protesters, Black Lives Matter protesters, sitting members of Congress, a state local party, and 19,000 political donors to a campaign, right? So I think that we have lots of documented abuses that have happened with this program. And as a result of that, we've seen a very interesting, you know, uh, case of strange bedfellows emerge where you have both, you know, members of the left and the right getting together, recognizing that this is a problem that is in desperate need of a solution. So recently we had a couple of senators and some members of the House of Representatives go and introduce what's called the Government Surveillance Reform Act that seeks to actually go and address some of these misuses and abuses that we've had occur underneath Section 702 of FISA. So that way you can have the balance of the national security interests, um, you know, because that certainly is an aspect that we can't ignore, uh, while also balancing that against the people's civil liberties here in the United States. That is very paramount, I think, to maintaining uh, you know, our national security, but also helping to restore lost trust in the very institutions that are supposed to be helping keep America safe. So I've, I've grown pretty cynical on all of these things. And when I hear that they're reforming something, my assumption is that at the end of the day, they're somehow going to have more power afterwards that we didn't know of. But is is that what's happening this time? Thankfully, no, uh, that's <laughs> not the intention, at least. We're we're trying to go and have a productive conversation that you know creates guardrails and and increases Congress's oversight and accountability functions that it can have over the, the intelligence community that has been using these authorities for years. And really, the punishments for violating the law in this instance have been negligible to non-existent. The worst punishment that I've heard of has been a you know um, when somebody lied to the FISA court actually underneath the Carter Page, which was underneath a completely different portion of FISA. Um, that lawyer in question just basically faced a probation, which is 
nothing in the scheme of things, uh, which means that the intelligence community can feel quite emboldened to just go and blatantly disregard things and, and violate your rights. Because, again, what's the punishment for going and doing it? Uh, it seems to be not all that much. So the GSRA, uh, as it's known to be, is trying to go and have some accountability measures in there um, for people that go and knowingly and willingly violate that law. And then it also goes and has, um, like I said, oversight functions for Congress, uh, more broadly speaking. But then it doesn't just focus on FISA. It also goes and covers the executive surveillance programming that we see done underneath Executive Order 12333, it's called. So um, it's really trying to tackle the broader surveillance issue that has plagued our government um, over the last 15 plus years. Uh, and, and, you know, again, the intention is to not go and have the government be more empowered. And at least as written, I don't see many ways that that would be possible. So that's the good news. I've read something about them potentially requiring a, a warrant to access this information, which I've also read as a red line for some of these people. Uh, are we going to get that warrant? Yes, um, that, that is actually one of the mainline features of the legislation is that there would be a warrant requirement. Um, that would be in place there where, you know, if you're trying to go and access that information where in a situation where you would normally require a warrant, it's saying get a warrant, which is a very simple thing, I think. You know, I don't think that's controversial to go and ask for, but apparently if you ask the administration, that's just a big no-no, uh, and they will threaten to veto the legislation, even though when they were making those comments, interestingly enough, uh, the Biden official that was speaking uh, anonymously said that they had not read the proposal. So I think it's a little hard to go and sit there and, and, you know, make such kind of commentary when you haven't even read the proposal to know what's in it. But then again, maybe that's just, you know, part of Congress, more broadly speaking, where they just don't read the bills or something. Well, um, we need to sign it to know what's in it. We all know that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so I think that, you know, we want to avoid that kind of a situation playing out here. Um, and I think that the warrant requirements is actually very important because, again, um, you don't want this just being misused and abused. And part of the reason why is that, again, they don't have to worry about the warrants or just going and operating with the FISA court, um, you know, where, again, it's very difficult because if you're somebody who's being targeted, let's say, um, for that kind of surveillance, one of the issues is that you wouldn't even know. This is a point that Senator Lee raised when he was at the press conference introducing the legislation. He's like, how would you know? Uh, all this is classified, right? So you you don't even know. So part of the Part of the measures in the GSRA is also trying to go and increase the transparency um, within the, the FISA court process and having an amicus that can go and review some of this stuff uh, to go and defend the civil liberties a little bit more you know, scru scru scrupulously than otherwise has been possible, right? So um, again, I think that this was a very strong proposal by members, again, across the political spectrum um, that recognize that there's a problem. And they do recognize the national security importance, I think. But again, it can't be that in pursuit of that mission that you get a blank check to do whatever you want because national security. Civil liberties do matter. And the fact that you have had all those abuses over the years has led to people not trusting in the FBI and these intelligence communities that have, you know, largely gone and gone unchecked for years on end. So again, it's really important to go and get us back on a path where we can go and restore the lost trust in these institutions. And that's what this kind of legislation tackles. I have a question on the warrant. Maybe you'll know how this works. Just one more thing on that. Is this a warrant that goes to an outside normal legal court process, or is this going to be an in-house warrant where they, you know, the, that the FISA court has to do or how the, is it just going to be a rubber stamp warrant, I guess is what I'm asking. No, I don't think that it would be a rubber stamp warrant. I think the intention there is to make sure that it, it is something that 
um, you know, is, is something that you'll actually have to monitor. I think that that is a problem that we've seen occur in other instances where I remember back to my work in the States on this in Utah, there was a report one time where uh, the average time for a judge to go and approve a warrant took less than the average number of pages that would have been, uh, you know, required for reading, let's say, in terms of the time. It just didn't line up right. So that, that rubber stamping thing is certainly an issue. But um, no, I think that this is meant to actually go and reinforce um, you know, having that that due process being respected there. Um, so I would say that it's not trying to go and have a rubber stamping process, which is why the administration is so opposed to it. They think that it would be untenable and would result in people getting killed, which I think is not true whatsoever. Um, again, if there was an exigency, it's not like you, you can't go and navigate that. Um, so again, I think that it's not meant to do a rubber stamp. It's not meant to go and, you know, prevent the government from dealing with those, um, you know, high risk situations, if you will. Um, I think that it's trying to be very cognizant of respecting the boundaries in both directions here. I guess I wonder if uh, in doing this, does it mean that people in Congress are learning the lesson that it's bad for the government to have this much blanket power in, in surveillance? I, like I thought when Trump got in office, well, his campaign was was spied on using this. So I assume uh, that we're actually going to be kind of clamping down on the surveillance state, but it actually expanded a little bit while, while he was in power. To, to my understanding anyway. Uh, but now you talk about them spying on uh, BLM, uh, things like that. Is it is it just that people on both sides of the aisle are sort of learning this lesson slowly as more time goes on? Yeah, I think that that's why you've seen a, a turn with, with many Republicans, um, you know, getting onto this kind of stuff. But I mean, the people that are leading on this have been critics of this exact kind of issue for many years. I mean, Mike Lee, that's always been his bread and butter is talking about civil liberties and and worry about government abuse of power, right? He's been so strong on that for years on end. So um, he's really been a champion in this space. And same thing for Ron Wyden, too, to his credit. I mean, again, he's a Democrat, but he's really good about understanding why it's problematic when the government just has these untapped and unaccountable powers at their disposal, right? So I think that we can't ignore, um, you know, the importance of the bipartisan nature of this legislation, it's also interesting to me, uh, I guess just one more thing on this same this same topic, that as we, we keep hearing about the border being so relaxed and so many people coming over, we don't know how many uh, peop, uh, members of terrorist groups have come across. I am somewhat surprised to see them uh, issuing more restrictions on the government surveillance at the time that they're also talking about more and more uh, threats potentially from within the U.S. So what's that side saying about it? Yeah, I think I think that you know it, it's a, it's an interesting conversation around national security uh, is ultimately what that comes down to, uh, and I think that that's a line drawing exercise in, in my view is that you know how far does national security take you to justify the the the, the ends that you're seeking to accomplish here, um, and at the end of the day, I think that there is a balancing measure there, um, and we're you know that's why it's important to go and have the conversation to go and close the gaps where we can here because at the end of the day, I think that those same Republicans that care about border security also recognize the serious problem that's come from the government weaponizing its power to go and target, you know, American civilians, which again, this program was originally meant to target non-U.S. persons. So I think that, um, you know, Republicans are certainly keenly aware of trying to strike that balance a little bit better. Um, so I think that I'm personally that there's, there's a way that we can go and, um, you know, navigate that conversation better than perhaps we might have been able to in years past. All right, well, let's pivot to another conversation here. Uh, you were telling me beforehand that you've been following this Biden executive order on on AI. And uh, what do you, you know, what do you think about that so far? 
Well, it's not great. There are some good things tacked away in it, so it's not all bad. Um, but there are many things that it's trying to do. So, number one, it's leveraging the Defense Production Act um, in order to go and adjust how the government procurement process is going to work around these technologies, which is something that I'm internally torn about because on one end, as we were just talking about with FISA, the government can go and leverage this technology to go and do some really abusive things. But on the other side, the government's also one of the largest procurers of a lot of this software, which means that it can go and basically shape what some companies might be doing in terms of their development processes of the technology, which could harm innovation and growth that we otherwise might not have um, because they're trying to go and get those government contract dollars, right? So um, I have mixed feelings about that particular <laughs> aspect of the executive order. But then on the flip side, it also rightly recognizes that we need to go and do more to streamline and, and, and make it more efficient to get these uh, immigrants into the United States that are specialized in dealing with this kind of technology so that we can maintain our, our, our knowledge gap over the rest of the world on artificial intelligence. The United States is leading in many ways in this race. And the best way that we can ensure that we do that is by making sure that we keep the best minds here in the United States and attract them here um, and make sure that we have the companies here in the United States. Um, so that's, that's great. Uh, but I think that that gets undermined when you're dealing with uh, the procurement process stuff, which might go and slow down innovation and by extension, perhaps the need for as many immigrants to go and tackle um, this, this pressing issue as it comes up. Um, and then, you know, there's other parts of the executive order that are tackling, you know, nuclear war and, and biochemical weapons and AI being used in those instances. It's also calling on the FTC to go and um, you know, enforce existing law, but also contemplate new rules and regulations, which makes Lena Khan so happy because she is not a fan of AI either. Um, she tried investigating open AI back in, in July, you know, underneath the guise of broad consumer harm. But in actuality, what it was about was her trying to target the large language model uh, as inputs that was producing, you know, false results about individuals, right? Um, so I'm not overly excited about him going and encouraging the FTC to do more here, but he's also encouraging the broad administrative state to do more too. Enforce existing laws. Think about how you're going to be using it. Think about how you might want to regulate it within your space. That's a death by a thousand cuts strategy to AI, and that I think is a net negative. Um, so we're not particularly thrilled overall with the AI executive order from this administration. Well, there's a big danger of uh, if they're going to get involved in regulating AI. My assumption is there'll be a lot of regulatory capture by some of the really big uh, corporations that are already well established in this field, and they'll have regulations that are going to help them uh, grow and make more money at, at the expense of some of the smaller companies. And is that likely to happen, you think? I mean, yeah, 100%. I think that part's hard to ignore, and it's been something that I've been beating the drum about since a lot of this stuff is kicking off over the last year, is that, um, you know, I can't help but notice that the kinds of regulations that people are clamoring for would go and entrench the very people that this administration are so upset with. You know, we've talked about numerous times on your show the animosity towards the big tech sector, if you will. Um, and I can't help but note that these kinds of proposals would make Microsoft a lot better positioned to go and maintain a good, strong status than in an alternative situation where they don't have uh, these kinds of rules and regulations that control things. And I can't help but also note that really the ones that are at risk here too are the open source community um, that actually drive a lot of cool little innovations that we don't otherwise think about that improve our online experiences more broadly speaking. So um, yeah, when we're going and we're doing these, these arbitrary guidelines of, well, if you have a frontier model or if you have these parameters that this, this kind of regulation would apply to you, and they're like, well, you know, this only applies to the, the very largest models. It's basically what you're assuming there is that nobody else wants to go and grow to be to that level. And I think that that's a wrongheaded approach. It's just, it does not make sense to me. 
the the government's not typically who I think about when I think about brand new technologies uh, or anything. You know, I think about them hand keying in people's uh, tax information or them using uh, some kind of software that's a, a language that's 50, 60 years old or something. You know, when they're when they're dealing with this, so I don't really. Uh, I don't really see them as someone who should be heavily involved in the development of AI in the first place. Would it would it be better if they would just stay out altogether? I would certainly argue so. And that's that's what we did when we were having the conversations about the Internet back in the day. Europe decided to be a lot more hands on and restrictive about their policy choices, whereas the United States was like, we're going to go and embrace hands off. And what do you know? We gained trillions of dollars in economic activity, lots and lots of jobs that are high paying and, and really good. Um, and a lot of net positive for the United States when we have a $26 trillion economy. And the same kind of impact can be had here in AI because AI is going to be impacting every single industry of our economy in some rhyme or fashion, um, both in an internal facing capacity as well as in a consumer facing capacity. And I can't think of anything worse than having an administration where the president was influenced about his thinking on AI a little bit by watching the most recent Tom Cruise's uh, Mission Impossible <laughs> movie, uh, you know, uh, to go and, and think about that and have worries about it. That's just the whole point of a movie is that you're supposed to suspend belief, not actually go and buy into it. Uh, so, I, I mean, it's really alarming when you see stuff like that. I think that on average, you want to go and embrace a light touch approach. You want to go and see what we can do to support, not stifle the innovation and entrepreneurial spirit of the American economy uh, that we have out there. Um, but unfortunately, we've let these these AI doomers uh, go and drive the conversation because they're worried about nuclear war, pandemics. That's a, that's the, what they're likening AI to. And that's just like the chances of that happening, the Terminator doomsday scenario, it is so unrealistic in terms of the probability that it, it is wrong to be basing, couching the conversation in that kind of an outcome. Because what that does is it drives your entire perception of the technology by fear. And we've, we've seen this play out time and time over history, whether it was with the printing press or radio or television or going to the smartphone. People always feared this technology. And then once it got integrated, people actually liked it and were better off as a result of it. And the same thing holds true here. Okay, you brought it up. So totally off-topic conversation here. What did you think about the new Mission Impossible and the villain being AI? Did you did you like that? I, I, I actually have not seen the new Mission oh, okay. Impossible movie. Okay. So when I All saw right. that that was what it was, I was like, of course it's AI. Uh, and I was actually just talking to my dad last night and he was telling me about some other movie on Netflix that also has AI as part of its enemy list. And I'm just like... Oh, I'll leave it to that. Maybe Hollywood's, uh, you know, Writers Guild or something is trying to go and push anti-AI <laughs> stuff into the script more or something. I don't know. Uh, we got to go and fix that pronto uh, because I, I would rather go and focus the conversation around AI about the immense good that it can do, about how it can go and help kids better navigate their educational system so that they can learn better. Because one thing that happened with COVID was we locked everybody down. We kept kids in and the learning loss is generational in its impact. And this can go and help close that gap a little bit more because we can go and not just teach kids about what's right or wrong, but how to get to right instead of that simple binary, right? Or in the healthcare context, you know, AI is being used to help spot cancer at a much more effective and efficient rate than it was otherwise able to in the past when it was just relying on the, the x-ray technicians to go and figure it out. 50% versus 25% on the miss rate, that's a massive difference. That's a lot of lives saved, right? Using AI to go and help a person that had a stroke um, by giving them trousers that are connected to the AI to help them with walking, that's incredibly important for them, right? 
But that doesn't get discussed because there's a perverse incentive to go and highlight the Terminator situation or to go and highlight, you know, the weird, creepy AI personality that came out because somebody intentionally broke the large language model. Like, I mean, that's that's just silly stuff. Yeah, I think uh, it's it's definitely not as fun to talk about uh, kids being able to uh, learn certain topics, you know, during the pandemic better uh, than it is to talk about a robot coming from the future to uh, or a cyborg coming from the future to to kill people. You know, that's I, I will admit that one's a lot more exciting to me, and it does work. And I wonder if that's I I wonder if that's why they focus on the fear because politicians. You, you know, they, they can govern a lot by people being scared of things. And so that's why it's so easy for them to jump into this field. Oh, you're 100% right. Whether it's in FISA or it's in artificial intelligence, fear is a very powerful tool because it will go and let you, you know, do things that you otherwise might not do. That was the same thing with COVID. Fear of, of, that, of that disease led to us doing a lot of things that would otherwise not happen. People were willing to give up their civil liberties in exchange for the security and privacy. Um, with FISA, you know, you're willing to go and give up civil liberties because you're worried about national security or another 9-11 happening, right? And in the instance of AI, you know, maybe you're willing to go and give up the, the economic progress and all of that that is possible if we let AI go about unfettered because you're worried about the, 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 the minuscule chance that you get the doomsday situation from Terminator. There's a lot of power in that message, but it doesn't make it any less wrong. It is a bad message to be sending. It is anti-American at its core because America has actually flourished by embracing tech and innovation. Imagine if the Wright brothers had to go through this large, you know, process of getting approval from the government before deploying its, you know, new plane design every single time, right? Like that would just defy the law of, you know, mm -hmm. of logic. Like, why would you do that? That you, you imagine how much more stagnant our, our growth would be uh, and our growth rates in the economy would be if we had to go and follow that kind of regime. So, um, you know, we're going and doing what we can. We think that that particular executive order is um, way too broad and it's abusing emergency powers because he's using the Defense Production Act for it. Um, so we've gone and submitted some FOIAs to the Biden administration trying to get some more clarity around what makes them think that, you know, AI is an emergency or something when it's here to stay. It's going to be a permanent fixture of our economy. And we're going to try to hold them accountable for this abuse of power. As you were bringing up the Wright brothers, I just thought about uh, Starship sitting on the launch pad for a couple months waiting on approval from the FAA uh, so they can actually launch, which hopefully will be tomorrow morning and I'll be watching to see if that happens. But anyway, James, I'm not going to take up any more of your time. Let everyone know where they can go to read all your stuff and keep up with what you're doing. Absolutely. So to get all my latest musings on tech policy, you can go and follow me on X at JamesCZ19, or you can go and check out my profile on the Young Voices website, which is youngvoices.com. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.